0: Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at
1: salemalliance.org. This week's message is by
0: Steve Fowler.
1: If you got your Bibles, uh, if you want to go to the book of Hosea, um, that's where I'm going to be speaking from this morning. If you did not bring a Bible... Um, There is one that looks just like this one. It's in the pew rack in front of you. You're in the front row. It's kind of underneath your seat there. And uh, if you go to page 1,407, you will be at Hosea chapter 1. Um, and you'll find your way there. We, we started a new series last week. Brian Candelo got us started. Uh, we're looking at the minor prophets. The series is called Text Messages, and the reason that is is because these are short, shorter books, uh, short little messages. And um, and sometimes you, you, you hear about um, minor prophets. The, their their messages were not minor. Their messages were very important. Um, they're called that just because they're a shorter book. And uh, so we're we're going through that series. And Brian last week looked at the book of Amos and told us that you know uh, he thinks that you know if Amos were to send us a text message, he would tell us that there's no such thing as invisible righteousness. That righteousness is expressed through living lives of justice as being a just person, uh, personally, and then when we see oppression, being people who seek the justice in our, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our city, and, uh, and so Brian talked about that. He held a plumb line and talked about how God was, was having folks stand up to the plumb line, measure up to the plumb line, and calling people back to him. So that, that was last week, and like last week, what I wanna do is I wanna show you a quick little, just a little bit less than two minute video It's by the Bible Project out of Portland and it'll give you just a little snapshot overview of what is going on in the book of Hosea. So enjoy this, this clip.
0: The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer, who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married, but they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land and they took all the abundance that he gave them and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel and he thinks about doing so but instead he says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why? It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness.
1: It's like it's a little snapshot of, of Hosea. And I, just, I do want to say up front that if you're your parent and you're here and you got young kids, the themes that are expressed in Hosea, um, if there's any time it feels like, man, I'm not sure if I want my, my child, I mean, this is like a PG 13 sermon, maybe. Um, uh, maybe yeah, I don't want my child hearing this You're not, you are not going to hurt my feelings if you need to get up and walk out I'm going to trust your wisdom on that but I do want you to know that there are some themes here as you already seen the video of marriage and, and adultery and, and, and it, it does get a little bit graphic but I just wanted you to know that if that's something you need to do is step out no, no problem I'll leave it up to you um, you know their their metaphors are, are pretty powerful. I like metaphors because what it does is it takes language and puts a picture to it and i 'm a visual person, so I, I like these these uh, pictures in my head and there are some very poetic metaphors. Um, uh, this one, which was uh, was written by Pablo Picasso, the artist, he says "Art washes away from the soul the dust of everyday life." You let that metaphor sink in just, that's a that 's a pretty Pretty uh, poetic metaphor. Uh, art washes away the, from the soul the dust of everyday life. Another classic, Vincent van Gogh, who says, Conscience is a man's compass. Um, and that, that kind of puts a picture in your head. Another classic by Bob Dylan Chaos. Chaos is a friend of mine. Uh, talking about his life, and you're probably aware that people, when it comes to love, when it comes to friendship, when it comes to relationship, when it comes to marriage, people um, use metaphors as well, and I'll just say there's not too many of them that are that poetic. Um, There's, frankly, some bizarre ones, some strange ones, like this one. Marriage resembles a pair of shears, joined so that they cannot be separated, often moving in opposite directions, yet always cutting those who come between them. Sounds kind of violent, Uh, but there you go. Or a more simplistic one, true love is like a good pair of socks. It takes two and they got to (laughs) match. Or another metaphor written by someone who probably didn't have a great experience in a relationship, our love is a snowmobile racing across the tundra. Suddenly it flips over, pins you underneath, and at night the ice weasels come. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh, Elvis Presley sang this song, I slipped, I stumbled, I fell. And two lines from his song are, I look at you and wham, I'm head over heels. I guess that love is a banana peel. <laughs> really? <laughs> love is a banana peel? That's the best you got, Elvis? Um, the people, the people come up with, the, uh, with metaphors all the time. And when it comes to relationships, there's metaphors. And when it comes to the book of Hosea, there's a metaphor. God is going to give a metaphor to his people about the kind of relationship that he wants and what happened to that relationship. Um, And he's he's done this before. He's given us pictures to help us understand how he relates to us. We have metaphors like the metaphor of a king. uh, That's one you'll find in the scriptures. you got a metaphor of a father, that's a rather powerful metaphor that he gives us. Um, there's the metaphor of a shepherd, uh, sh- you know, shepherding sheep. That's a picture that, that God gives to us. And when we get to the book of Hosea, that we have this unusual situation where God is going to deliver this message to his people, and it's going to go something like this. Israel, my relationship with you is like a bad marriage, Israel, my my relationship with you is like a bad marriage. It, it started out, it, it was a marriage, and we'll talk about marriage and some of the implications of what God is trying to get across by using that metaphor. I talk about being the bridegroom and, and the power behind that. We'll talk about that marriage that God had with his people and then how it went bad. What happened? And what God is going to do is in Hosea, he's going to say to Hosea, Hosea, I, I'm not asking you to, to speak out a metaphor to the people. I want you to live it. I want you to live it. I want you to live out this bad marriage. So I, we're going to talk about marriage. We're talking about the bad marriage that God has to those people. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how God healed his marriage. So This all flows through the book of Hosea. And so when when God says to Hosea in in chapter one, uh, he he starts out uh, just introducing himself, And it says the Lord gave this message to Hosea son of Barry during the years when Uzziah, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah were kings of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. When the Lord Lord first spoke speaking to Israel through Hosea he said to him go and marry. I'll just hit the pause button there. Go and marry Hosea. God is going to introduce himself. He's going to say, I want a kind of relationship. We've talked about king. We've talked about father. We've talked about shepherd. I want a relationship. He was like a marriage relationship. Now, why would he use that metaphor? Because he wants us to understand the depth of relationship he wants to go to. So if you just kind of chew on that here I just pulled a, a three things that I think that help us understand what what the kind of relationship what marriage actually pictures for us. And the first one is, is this if you're married your marriage relationship must be the prioritized relationship in your life. It's got to be the prioritized relationship in life. I mean nothing nothing has more priority in, in that in that marriage. This is this is the the if things are good at home, if, this, if, you, if your marriage is prioritized, here's what happens. You can be strong in your marriage, and your circumstances in life can be completely upside down. I mean, the world is just a mess. Work is tough. But if the marriage is, if you're married, if, if the marriage is strong, you move out into a chaotic world, and you move out in strength. But... If life is going great at work, if the neighborhood is smooth and it, the circumstances of, of of the world just are just fantastic, but things at home are difficult because there's a, there's a, as priorities are mixed up and the relationships not being nurtured, you move out into a very calm, peaceful world, but you move out in weakness. And what God is saying is that this relationship is to be a prioritized relationship. And he's also saying is that I'm not the God who gets you over the hump in the week. I'm not the God who's here just to give you a spiritual boost when you need it. I am not your spiritual vitamin supplement. We're married. And this is supposed to be experiential because this relationship must be a priority. I think that might be one thing he's trying to say. A second thing real quickly, marriage is the most intimate human relationship. Now physically, we know this, but, but think of the word knowledge. Meaning, in a marriage relationship, there is depth, there's intimate knowledge. See, we make judgments about one another. We, we look from a distance and we, we think people are a certain way, but our spouses, they know us. They, they, they know us, and I believe what God is saying here is He, he wants to be in every nook and cranny of our life. It, he doesn't want to be a God that we learn about. He wants to do life with us, He wants to be involved in all of life, and He wants you involved in His life because He has things to say to you. So I, I think we're talking about intimacy, and it's just a last observation of why a marriage metaphor is because marriage is incredibly powerful. Look, you can walk up to me after the service and say, Steve, you're one of the kindest people I've ever met. And I would smile and nod, and inside I would say, fooled you. Because, you know, I, I might put on my pastoral demeanor, my pastoral smile, hold my Bible high and tight, and, uh, and just, you know, and you, you're kind. Um, and, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm living a divided life. Maybe I'm a different person at home. So your words, ah, they're somewhat meaningful because it's working, I'm fooling you. But if my wife, Trina, walks up to me and says, Steve, you're the kindest person that I've ever met, that that I've ever known. Well, those words are powerful. Because she sees everything. Everything. She sees me at moments when I can be really frustrated. She sees the moments when I get angry. She, she sees everything. And if she were to walk up to me and say, you are, you are the most kindest person I've ever met, those are powerful words. Friends, If you can go into life and everyone in life is saying you're ugly, but your husband says you're beautiful, you feel beautiful. But if you, but if you go out into the world and everyone says you're beautiful and, and you come home and your spouse says to you, you're ugly, you feel ugly. Marriage is powerful, and I think what God is saying is, is, I have words to speak to you that will bring healing and life, and I, and I want, we are, we're married, and I, I want intimacy, I want priority, and, and I want to speak words to you, and I want to hear you speak words to me because we're in a relationship. So yeah, the king metaphor, that, that's good. The shepherd metaphor, that's good. The father metaphor, that, that's great. But I want you to understand a marriage metaphor. Israel, I bought you out of each, I, I redeemed you, brought you out of slavery. I, I walked you through the wilderness and I, and I persevered with you there and I put you in the promised land and, and I was like a spouse to you. I'm your bridegroom. And that's, that's our marriage. But the marriage went bad. But this, this marriage, I mean, Isaiah chapter 62, verse five, says these words. Just as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. These are powerful words. Incredibly powerful words. I, I do a fair amount of weddings. And typically what happens, I mean, there's, there's days and weeks and months and sometimes over a year of waiting and anticipation and planning and preparing for the big day. And if there's a wedding in here, what what typically happens is people show up just like you showed up for church and they're they're sitting in seats and there's there's an excitement because it's a wedding day and they're celebrating with someone that they love and uh, and the bridal party starts coming for and they take their place and, and oftentimes the groom will walk out. I'll walk out with the groom. We'll be standing right here and the music will shift and everyone's anticipating the moment when those back doors are gonna flip open and they will flip open and they're standing in the back will be a bride with her dad and what happens then is the mother of the bride stands and everyone else stands and they all look at the bride it's this powerful moment and and the bride begins to slowly walk in and it's at that moment that I take my eyes off the bride and I steal a glance of the groom because everyone's looking that way let me tell you what happens to the groom the groom shoulders start to quiver because here comes his wife, and she's beautiful, and she's in this beautiful wedding gown, and, and it's just, it's, he's just seeing her for the first time, and his shoulders are quivering. No one sees it. They're all looking at the bride. And, and, then, and then he takes his, he goes like this. Because he's trying to get a hold, he's trying to compose himself. And there's some tears and he's wiping away tears. But the, by the time the bride gets about halfway or three quarters and everyone's, everyone's attention begins to move to the front and they see the groom, they see this guy with a big smile on his face because he's composed himself <laughs> at that point. You, you gotta get this. God, he's like the groom at the front of the wedding ceremony and he sees you walk in the back doors and his shoulders quiver. And he takes a deep breath trying to compose himself because he's moved emotionally. And he wipes away tears because he finds so much joy in you. He finds so much joy in us. This is the relationship that he, that he has, that he longs for. But it has to be a prioritized relationship, an intimate one. It needs to be one where words of, of healing and life are spoken to one another. And that's what Israel had, but the marriage went Bad. Because Israel gave themselves to other lovers. And Hosea is going to live that out. Hosea chapter one, verse two. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute. Let me hit the pause button there because most biblical scholars would say that he's telling Hosea to go marry Gomer. She's not actively involved in prostitution. What he's saying to Hosea is, I want you to go marry Gomer, but here's the thing you need to know. She is going to absolutely crush you. I want you to go marry Gomer. She is just going to step all over your heart. She's going to trample your heart. She is going to wound you. She is going to hurt you. And how she's going to do it is through her, through her being unfaithful to you. And Hosea, I want, I want you to know, why would God want Hosea to do that? Well... I think because he wants Gomber to experience redemption. That's, that's one reason. I, but I think it's probably the most important reason that what God is doing here is he's saying to Hosea, Hosea, you will never understand what I'm feeling when my people go astray until you experience betrayal at this level. Hosea, when you experience the pain, of unfaithfulness in your marriage relationship, then you're going to have an idea of what it feels like for me when I see my people turn to false gods. And so Hosea does indeed marry Gomer, and she will be unfaithful, um, verse three says, Hosea, married Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, Name the child Jezreel. Uh, drop down to verse six. It says, Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the daughter, and the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Lo Ruhamah, not loved. Verse eight. Drop down even a little further. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami. The New Living Translation says, not my people. It literally means not mine. Which we don't know for sure, but chances are probably high that Hosea and Gomer had two children, a son and a daughter, and this third child that is born, Hosea, literally did not father this child and he names the child not mine. And he's beginning to experience the pain of someone being unfaithful. The marriage, the marriage is going bad. And it doesn't just get like somewhat bad, I mean, Gomer is sleeping around, she's, she's bouncing, she's not only you know, sleeping with other guys, she's leaving the house now, she's leaving Hosea, and now she's moved in with other guys and she's sort of bouncing around the neighborhoods and she's, she's making the rounds and what we'll see is eventually she gets to this place where she does become a prostitute. In fact, she gets to this place where, I mean, things. she's so out of control. She's out of control. I mean, things are bad. Things are really bad to the point, we'll see in chapter three here pretty quickly, she's, she's going to be for sale. I mean, she, she's she's a sex addict. She's she just, she's bouncing around the neighborhood and, and things have gotten bad. It started off great. We had this marriage. There was priority. There was intimacy. There, there was power. And, and then what happened is, is those things started to dissipate and, and now she's... Now the marriage is, is really, really bad. What's going on here is Gomer is trying to fill this inner emptiness in her soul with a false sense of intimacy. And it's not satisfying, which is why she keeps bouncing around. In fact, this is, this is something that God has been calling out to Israel for quite some time. Uh, Jeremiah uh, chapters two through four, I just pulled out some verses um, they'll be on the screen behind me, but listen to these words. O Jerusalem, I remember how, as a bride, you loved me, but you said, I will not serve you. Is a maiden forget her jewelry and a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. By the roadside, you sat waiting for lovers. You ran after other gods until your feet were bare and your throat was dry, but you said, it's no use, I love foreign gods, I can't help it, I must go after them. But can the gods you made for yourself save you when you are in trouble? What what are you doing, oh, devastated one, says the Lord? Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why shade your eyes with paint? You adorn yourself in vain for lovers despise you and they seek your life. What God is saying, he's saying to Israel, look, we were married, we had priority, we had intimacy, there was power in our relationship, but you went chasing after other gods and it's as if you were just all dressed up, waiting on the road, ready to give yourself the way to other things and what is going on? You're devastating your life and we still do this, Friends. We chase after stuff that give us a false sense of security, a false sense of significance, a false sense of intimacy. We chase after money, and we say, if I just had this much money, then I'd be happy. If I just had this job, or if I had that achievement, or that promotion, or if I was just married, then I'd be satisfied. If we could just have kids, then I would be really satisfied. If if our kids... Could, could be really involved with sports and then they could, they could work their way up and be really good. Maybe some college will take notice of them and they'll give a scholarship and the priority of our relationship with God, yeah, you know, that'll kind of dwindle for a while but it's for a good purpose because you know, they'll get a scholarship, at the University of Oregon <laughs> or OSU. And we give ourselves away to all this stuff, all these things, thinking that will satisfy. And here's what's going on. We are taking a marriage, and what we are doing is we're sleeping around and betraying. And what God is saying to Hosea and what he's saying to us, we got to hear this. What he's saying is... Just like a spouse is wounded when another spouse betrays them and is is unfaithful. That is what I feel when you do this. God has the audacity to say these words. I'll put them on the screen. If you make anything more important than me, you are doing the same thing with your soul that a sex addict does with his or her body. You're devastating your soul. And the marriage has gone bad. There, there, was, there was a good marriage, a healthy marriage. And, and then there was betrayal. And God is saying, my heart has been trampled on. I'm emotionally wounded. And can I just, there's some of you in this room that th- you know that pain. You know what that feels like. And perhaps you, better than anyone else, can understand what God feels when this happens. The marriage has gone bad. So how does God heal his marriage? What 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 does he do? Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 1. And the Lord said to me, "Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover." This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Hosea, I want you to go back to your wife again. Things are desperate. Yep, she she came, came pregnant. It was right after you had that daughter. She was pregnant again. And yeah, you had that conversation at the dining room table, and she said it wouldn't happen again, but it did happen again. And she went out and she slept with someone else. In fact, she just kind of worked her way around town. And, and things got so desperate that actually, she, as she was unfaithful to other men, she ended up being, becoming a prostitute, working the streets. But here's where she's at, Jose. She's hit rock bottom now. Things are bad. See, she's at this place now where she's gonna be involved in an auction and because Israel is likely, Israel's taken on the Canaanite ways of doing life, so this is likely a public auction and Gomer has lost her marketability now as a prostitute. And what's going on here is probably the pimp is cutting his losses. And Gomer is being sold in a public auction. And and God's saying to Jose, Hosea, say, I want, I want you to go to that auction and I want, you to, I want you to get her back. I want you to buy her back. And there's Hosea, there, there's Gomer being, being auctioned and, and you, you got, you got it's, it's a tough picture to, to visualize, but you got to picture this. It, it's a public auction and it's likely she's either wearing nothing or very little because the bidders need to know what they're getting. And in this moment of humiliation, in this moment of complete degradation, I've got to imagine that Gomer has her eyes closed. Because people are starting to bid on her. One piece of silver, three pieces of, five pieces of silver. And as her eyes are closed and there's this is public auction, this, this moment of humiliation, there is Gomer standing there and a voice speaks out, eight pieces of silver. And she recognizes the voice. That was Hosea what is my husband doing here? Why is he bidding for me? I know. It's payback time. It's time for revenge. No, he, he keeps escalating the bidding. Finally, Gomer is sold for 15 pieces of silver, a measure of wine, and a bushel of barley, the going rate for a slave. Sold. And I imagine Hosea comes up with a cloak, covers her, buys her, and then you read the words of what he says to her in chapter three. He says in verse two, so I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. Then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even with me. This shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward, the people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. In the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and of his goodness. Gomer, it's not payback time. I want you to to live, we're gonna live in the same house. You're not gonna work the streets anymore. There's no intimacy outside these walls. There's no intimacy inside these walls. You need to understand, Hosea has paid a financial price. He has paid a social price. His friends, his neighbors at the auction had to be saying, Dude, what are you thinking? This is that woman who betrayed you, who crushed you, who trampled on your heart. You're going to buy her back. She doesn't deserve that. He's paid a social price. He brings her home and he is continuing to pay the price as he seeks to heal the relationship. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the, the book of Hosea, explains what he's doing. He says, There were the disloyal habits years in the making that needed to be broken, and there were the painful realities in the personal relationship that needed to be unhurriedly explored together they're doing what we would call today deep emotional work. And Hosea keeps paying the price. The, it was, the wedding day was beautiful. It started out great. But God told Hosea she was gonna crush him. She did crush him. God, God was a husband to Israel, just like Hosea was a husband to Gomer. Hosea was betrayed by Gomer. His heart was crushed, God was betrayed by his people. His heart is crushed, emotionally wounded. Hosea goes into the marketplace and begins the healing in his relationship by buying her back. But where does that happen in the story? Matthew chapter nine, the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and ask him this question, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus responds by saying, do the wedding guests, do the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom, when the bridegroom is at the celebration? But the bridegroom will be taken away and then they will fast. Now you may have missed it there, but the hearers in that day would have gone, the bridegroom? Why is he metaphorically saying bridegroom? The bride, everyone knows who the bridegroom is. The bridegroom is God. The Old Testament's been talking about this for, for centuries. The bridegroom is God. Why, why, why fast when the bridegroom is here, but the bridegroom will be taken away? Why would the bridegroom be taken away? Because he's going to be taken away to the cross and he's going to pay a price. He's going to pay a social price, he, he's, going to, he's going to pay a physical price. The price of his life, he left the glory of heaven and took on, in in humility, took on flesh and he goes to the cross to pay the ultimate price. Why does he go to the cross and pay the ultimate price? To buy us back, friends. We were on auction. We're the humiliated gomer. We're, we're We're the gomer that's going through this moment of degradation in our deepest, worst situation where things have just hit rock bottom. There is God saying, eight pieces of silver. And the bidding goes up, and he said, I'll give my life. And that's how God healed his marriage. He went to a people he was originally married to, and he wanted depth of relationship, and it, it had gotten to a place where betrayal had taken place. And instead of divorcing us, instead of cutting his losses and saying, enough, I can't take anymore, what he does is unthinkable. And he asks Hosea to do the same so that we could understand the incredible emotional pain that God himself must have been feeling when he sent his son Jesus to the cross. But oh, for the the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross knowing that there'd be a day like this where we'd be together and we'd celebrate. Because anyone who would turn back to him, he would take into his home and say, I want to dwell with you. We got some work to do. And then he says, he says in Isaiah, then I will be yours. Notice he doesn't say, you will be mine. I bought you, I paid the price for you, you're mine. He says, I will be yours. It's this posture of, I want to keep giving myself to you. Look, look, in a few moments, we're going to celebrate that moment when Christ paid the ultimate price to buy us back off the auction block. We're going to celebrate Communion. But listen to this invitation in, in uh, Hosea chapter 14. The, the minor prophets, the, the beginning chapters and all which, it, it just, man, it's pretty dark. But then you get, you always get to a place of hope. Hosea 14 begins by saying, return, O Israel. And I, anytime I see that, I just put my name in there. Return, O Steve, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and graciously receive us so that we may offer you our praises. Never again will we say to the idols we have made, you are our gods. No, and you alone do the orphans find mercy. Now get this, get verse 4. This is centuries before Christ is born. The Lord says, then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds, meaning he'll pay any price. My love will know no bounds, for my anger will be gone forever. I mean, if Hosea was shooting us a text message on God's behalf, he would say this. He says, I love you, and I'll pay any price